The oldest one is estimated to be over 3,300 years old. They are the fastest growing, tallest, heaviest trees in the world. And some of you have seen the giant sequoias. But one of the most surprising things about the greatest of all trees is this. They have a relatively small and shallow root system. According to the Department of California State Parks, most of the sequoias have a root system of tiny thread-like roots, little feeders that go out from the base of the tree never deeper than five feet from the top of the soil. Pretty astounding, isn't it, that a foundation so delicate could support above ground a tree that is sometimes 253 uh, feet high, about 25 stories high. How can it do it? These little feeders underneath a ginormous tree? Well, one way is that the trees are able to maintain their uprightness for all these years because of those Little roots not only grow out, but they grow in. They intermingle and gain strength from one another so that it's not the little ones by themselves, but collectively they join together and are amazingly strong. What a great message for us as a church to remember that by ourselves we are weak, but united we stand strong. And that's part of the message that is coming out of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2. Let me encourage you to open your Bibles to the book of Ephesians chapter 2. We have been using this outline, sit, walk, stand, because first of all, we need to understand our position in Christ, where we have been seated. We've been seated in the heavenly places. And it's really not until chapter 4 that we are commanded to walk. Chapter 4, verse 1, walk worthy of your calling, of your seated position. And then when we get to chapter 6, it tells us we are to stand. And there is the progression, sit, walk, and stand. I find it amazing that in the first three chapters, Most of the verbs are indicatives, telling us what we are. And the very first imperative we run into is in our text in chapter 2 and verse 11, remember. And it's repeated in verse 12, remember. There's only one more imperative in the first three chapters, and that's chapter 3, don't lose heart. And then there's a ton of imperatives when you get to chapter 4, I like what Sinclair Ferguson said, the first half of Ephesians is for all practical purposes an imperative-free zone, which means know who you are before you try to live like you're supposed to live. Before you can give commands on behavior, be thoroughly clear about your position in Christ by grace alone and in Christ alone. So we have in Ephesians chapter two something very interesting. He begins to talk about the individual who was dead and raised to life, spiritual resurrection, the first 10 verses. And then he's going to talk about a fractured community 
that is dead and needs to be raised to life. A spiritual community. A new creature, a new creature, the first 10 verses, and then a new community, verse 11 through the end of the chapter. But I want us to look, beginning at verse 11 in chapter 2, at the progress of Paul's thinking, because he starts, first of all, with an explanation of what we are outside of Jesus Christ. That's that command, remember. Remember what you are or what you were when you were outside of Jesus Christ. Verse 11, therefore, remember that formerly you Gentiles, and remember, he is a Jew, and he is writing to the Gentiles in the city of Ephesus. The church is made up of Jews and Gentiles, but the largest population is Gentile. Remember that you Gentiles, you who are Gentiles by birth, and you were called the uncircumcised with a sneer and a spit in your direction, with animosity and hatred. You were called names by the Jews. You're the uncircumcised, but we are the circumcised. And he's referring to that operation that's done in the physical body by human beings, by uh, priests in that day. Not the spiritual circumcision, but the physical circumcision. And it's like saying, you're the ignoramuses and we're the intelligentsia. We're the godly and you're the godless. So it was a real put down. You ever been called a name? Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me? Ah, I heal after a broken bone. A wound from a word can last forever. So there was... These two groups didn't like each other. So again, he's saying, remember, verse 11, remember, verse 12, that at that time, you were separated from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of promise. And I think the result is described with these two phrases. You were without hope, and you were without God in the world. By the way, when you are without God, you are without hope. So this is what we are without Christ. Spiritually dead in chapter 2, verse 1, separated from God's Son, excluded from God's people, and strangers to God's promise. Excluded. That's a horrible word, isn't it? Omitted. (laughs) Kicked out. Left out, overlooked. You're not part of us. And there is so much division in this world that you and I experience that in one shape or another, at one time or another. The the us versus them. We feel it in our political arena. We feel it in economics. You know, we went through a hard time economically, but there's been a resurgence. However, some people have not experienced that economic resurgence. And so it's the us versus them. You don't like the leadership or you do like the leadership that is in control of our country and it becomes an us versus them. When I was in college, I worked at 
General Motors truck and coach, as it was called in Pontiac. I was on the assembly line putting back glass into medium-sized cabs. I had the very first female foreman, at least I think the very first in the history of GM. She was an excellent foreman and became a great leader in the organization. I was there gaining money for my college education, but what an education I received on the line. And I'll never forget working there one day, and my dad came down. He had an office in the same building. He was white-collar. I was blue-collar. And he came down to see how his son was doing. And all the people on the line began to work really hard because this white-collar guy came in. Now, there were many good, hard workers on the line, to be sure, but some were not. And then as dad left, they said, who is that? I said, that's my dad. And right away, that put a bit of uh, division between myself and my coworkers. They weren't that excited about me because I was the preacher. But now I was the preacher whose dad was white collar. And part of my education was to see that one side was against the other. One side felt they worked too hard. The other side felt they didn't work hard enough. One side said, you don't understand the headaches of management. The other side said, you never get your hands dirty. And they never understood where the other was coming from. Often didn't understand. There was distrust, acrimony, and hostility. They were alienated. The worst alienation in all the world, though, is to be alienated from God because you were created to have fellowship with him. And if you're living your life separate from him, what a horrible lost feeling that must be. I know it's bad. I used to be there. This is what we are without Christ, separated from God's son, excluded from God's people, on the outside, looking in, strangers. The commentator William Hendrickson said, we are Christless, stateless, friendless, helpless, hopeless, and godless. But this portion of scripture is gonna tell us there's a double alienation. It's not just being alienated from God, we are alienated from one another. When Adam sinned, when Adam and Eve sinned, there was immediately this separation from God, right? What did Adam do? First of all, they covered themselves, and then they what? Hid. They hid from God. <laughs> and then it wasn't too long before their conflict was not so much with God, but with one another. When God shows up and says, Adam, where are you? Did you eat of the fruit of the tree? Adam says, yeah, I did. I blew it right? No. He says, the woman you gave me, it's her. And we've been pointing fingers ever since, right? It's not my fault. I would really do a lot better if it wasn't for fill in the blank. And we're not only alienated with God, this alienation from God causes us to divide from other people. There's something else I want you to see in this passage that divides Jew and Gentile because that was the division that in that day. Look at verse 14. We'll get there in a moment, but just to jump down and notice that there was a dividing wall 
of hostility, as it's called in the last part of verse 14. What is that? A dividing wall of hostility. Oh, I get it. It's just this imagery of a partition between Jew and Gentile because they didn't get along. Well, it was that and more. It was a physical wall. You see, in the temple, Herod's temple, there were several courts. There was the court of the priests who ministered in the temple, and then the court of the Jewish men, and then outside of that, the court of the women, Jewish women. And then there was a wall between the court of the women and the court of the Gentiles. And this wall was five feet high, which I'm about six feet. I've been shrinking some, but I still say six. Uh, Five feet is about here. A wall that high and thick, several feet thick. And archaeologists have discovered remnants of this wall, and on on the wall they found this writing, no foreigner, no Gentile, may enter within the barrier and enclosure around the temple. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. Wow, there's a warning. Trespass past this wall if you're a Gentile and you only have yourself to blame for your execution. So the dividing wall was literal. They hated one another and they were separate from God and they were reminded of this time and time and time again But when you come to verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus. Here's this glorious coordinated conjunctive. This introduction of a magnificent reversal of fortune. You who used to be far off, you're now made near. There used to be a distance between you and God, but Jesus has bridged the gap. Isn't that amazing? So now you can be close to God instead of far away, as it's described in verse 13. By the way, this sounds very familiar to what we read back in verse 4 of chapter 2. The first three verses said you're dead in your sins. You've been following the ways of the world. You're controlled by the ruler of the prince, the, the prince of the power of the air. You're following the cravings of your sinful nature. But God stepped in. In grace, in Christ. And now he's saying the same thing. You used to be separated, distant from God, not a member of God's people, but now God steps in. And we go from what we are without Christ to what God has done for us in Christ. We who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. That refers to his sacrificial death. The distance has been removed. You'll see it talks about the blood in verse 13. It talks about his flesh in verse 15. It talks about his one body in verse 16. And it talks about the cross in verse 16. We're referring to the same situation where the body, the literal physical body of Christ, we're not talking about the spiritual body like we did last week, the church. We're talking about the literal human body of Jesus Christ, his flesh, hung on the cross, and by the shedding of his blood, 
He made an atonement for sin. And that's what God has done for us in Christ. So verse 14 says, Jesus Christ himself, very emphatic in the original, he himself is our peace. And that's talking about personal, individual peace. He is our peace. When you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, he becomes a peacemaker. He has brokered a deal with the Father, as it were. Not that they were ever against one another, but Jesus said, I will give my life. I will live a perfect life of obedience to the law for 33 years, and then I will give up my life and shed my blood as an atonement for sin, a perfect atonement. And everyone who believes in me, your hostility and your wrath will be taken away. We read about the wrath of God in verse 3 of chapter 2. We are objects of his wrath before we come to Christ. So Jesus took the wrath for us. You say, why the cross? Because God is righteous and holy and he cannot overlook sin. He must punish sin, but he loves you and doesn't want to punish you. So his son was punished in your place. That's the gospel. That's the good news. That's the cross. Romans 5.1 says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. <laughs> That's the greatest thing in the world, peace with God. Are you at peace this morning? Peace with God? Because you've trusted Christ and your sins are forgiven. But he doesn't stop there. He does remove the hostility that is there between us and God, the wrath that was coming against us because of our sin. Jesus makes peace with the Father so that we individually have eternal life. But he doesn't stop there. Verse 14, for he himself is our peace and he has made the two one. He has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility between us. Which, by the way, is interesting because in 30 A.D. the wall still stood. In fact, that dividing wall stood until 70 A.D. when the Romans came in and destroyed the city of Jerusalem. But spiritually, that wall can be taken away from Jew and Gentile. And the one who reconciles us to God reconciles us to one another. Do you get it? And how can you say, you love God whom you haven't seen when you hate your brother, the one you see every day. It's inconsistent. Because God wants us to be at peace with him and at peace with one another. Notice verse 14 says he has made the two one. What does that sound like? Sounds like marriage, doesn't it? The two shall become one. Well, it's very similar. Together we become one. Actually, together we become the bride of Christ and we're married to the bridegroom, Jesus. That's the imagery of the New Testament. The two become one. Many times, years ago, when countries were feuding and they tried to make a tentative peace, even in the midst of political tension and distrust, they would have an arranged marriage where the royalty from one country would marry the royalty of another country. 
And the hope was that the two countries would then become one through a marriage. It rarely worked. By the way, how many wives did Solomon have? Many of them were treaties made with different countries. He didn't court them all. You don't have that much time. And even Solomon, with all of his money, couldn't have bought that many gifts and rings. But they made treaties. Maybe even didn't meet some of them. But it didn't work. Sometimes a, a man and a woman will kind of despise one another and they hate one another and they're arguing with one another. There's one show that talks about that. Why are they always arguing with one another? It's because they like one another. Shouldn't we tell them? They'll never believe us, so says the story. Yeah, sometimes they get together, and once they get together, the warring stops, and the two become one, and now they have united purpose. That happens. But this is exactly what is supposed to happen between factions and divisions of human beings. Notice God's purpose is clear. He destroys the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. You say, well, I thought Jesus came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. What this means is he has abolished, rendered useless, the condemnation of the law. It's not that the moral law is set aside. It's the punishment and condemnation coming to us is abolished. The penalty is gone. And here's his purpose, to create in himself one new man, says the NIV, meaning one new humanity. He wants to create a new society. Jesus wants to create a new society in this fallen world called the church, called his body. It's a new humanity out of these two warring factions thus making peace, and in his one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross. And as they are reconciled to God, these two warring factions come closer together and ultimately are reconciled to one another. How good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. Verse 17 says, he came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who were near. Who was far away? Gentiles. Who was near? The Jews. And he's preached peace. He's announced peace to both of them. They have to accept it. But once they accept it, then they are to be drawn together. And there was a problem. There was a problem in the church in Ephesus. They had a rough time getting Jews and Gentiles together. And we have problems in our churches today, too. Getting Christians together from different cultures and different backgrounds. I'm not talking about putting people together on the one hand who believe the truth of God's word and on the other hand who believe religious heresy. I'm not talking about that at all. But I'm talking about a new humanity where we have put an end to hostility where there is reconciliation between us and God individually and between us and other believers. Christ died to bring peace in both divisions between man and God and man and man. We are new creatures in Christ 
and we are to be a new humanity, a new society in Christ with one another. And so that brings us to our third point here in Ephesians. This is what God desires to do for us in Christ. There is the achievement of peace at the cross. There is the announcement of peace, verse 17. He came and preached peace. For through him, verse 18, we have access. So here's the idea of the achievement of peace, the announcement of peace, the access of peace. By the way, did you notice the Trinity in verse 18? Through Christ, we have access to the Father by one Spirit. There it is. Paul's been repeating the Trinity over and over and over again. So consequently, verse 19, here's my conclusion. Paul says, you're no longer foreigners and aliens like I described in verse 12. You're fellow citizens with God's people. You're members of God's household. Not only that, you are built, verse 20, on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Apostles, New Testament, prophets, Old Testament. Their teachings, inscripturated in the word of God, become the foundation upon which this building is built. Jesus himself is the chief cornerstone. What does a cornerstone do? It gives symmetry, order. It uh, is not necessarily a foundation stone, but it is a stone upon which everything else is built. The cornerstone, that's Christ. And in Christ, the whole building, that's us. By the way, in Peter... In 1 Peter, we're called living stones built into this building. We're now the building. Who's the building? Jews and Gentiles who believe in Jesus, the church. In him, the whole building is joined together and it rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. The dividing wall taken down in the temple courts and now the holy temple which had a veil What did the veil do in the temple? It divided even the priests from getting into the presence of God. But now we have access. We have free access, verse 18, because of what Christ has done. And now we are the holy temple. Who's the holy temple of God? You say, a believer. That's right. In fact, all humanity, all of us were made to be temples in which God would dwell, but we sinned, and so God was absent. When we come to Christ, the Spirit lives in us, and we are the temple. But what you need to see is, in Him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit. And so you have the collective stones making the temple in which God dwells Paul is consistent with this. He does it again in Corinthians. It's not just the individual Christian in which God dwells. God dwells in the midst of his gathered people. When we are together, we're the church. And when the church is together, God is here. Did you know when you leave this auditorium and I come into it on Monday, God is not here in the same way? You say, well, God's everywhere, omnipresence. Absolutely true, everywhere. 
But when we gather, God is here in a special way. And when you leave, he's gone until the group gathers. This is not a holy building. It's dedicated for holy purposes. It's a special building because of a special purpose. It's holy when God's people come in and bring in the presence of God. So we are citizens of God's kingdom. Notice we're citizens. We're told in Colossians that we've been taken from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of of the sun. We're citizens of God's kingdom because he rules over us. We're members of God's family because he loves us. And we're stones in God's temple because he dwells in us. That's pretty amazing. You are God's kingdom because he rules over you. You are God's family because he loves you. And you are God's temple because he dwells in you. And I believe that's one of the most exciting things in the world. But the tragedy is this. As we said last week, what God intended and desires is not always reality. The church is often fractured and alienated, divided, There is disunity and discord. We don't have a literal wall between us. We have often erected new barriers like color, racism. Do you love those of a different color? Sunday night, November 19th, in our chapel, I've invited three of my good friends who are African-American Christian leaders. Coy Boyer, Royce Evans, Lee June. Lee June is from Michigan State. The three of them are going to talk about what it is to be an evangelical black American. And I want us to come and listen because we don't get it. I want us to learn how to love one another. We do a really good job inside these walls. I think a pretty good job. I'm not preaching this message because there's disunity in South. Usually when a pastor talks like this, you're saying, oh, I wonder what the problem is. No, I'm preaching this because this is chapter two in Ephesians and we're going through the book. But what we enjoy in here, we often don't enjoy out there. We have a church in our church called the Middle Eastern Evangelical Church, and the pastor is with us today. These dear people of God coming from an Arab background are under such persecution because of a few wild ones. How do you like to be tied in with all the wild Americans that live? Go overseas and you will be (laughs) And sometimes we're prejudiced because of the skin of someone different. Maybe a new barrier is nationalism or tribalism or a class system. Or how about this, clericalism? You say, what is that? That's where pastors elevate themselves above the laymen. By the way, you should start calling me doctor. Has God called us to do something different? Yes. Is it a leadership position? Yes. But I am not your pope. And you can be glad for that. 
I'm, fellow, I'm a fellow lamb that goes astray. I work under the chief shepherd. I am not the chief shepherd. And clericalism has been established in many churches where the pastor becomes a pope. Not good. So what are we going to do? I wonder what the church would be like if we started living united in Christ and loved each other because God loves us. United we stand. Divided we fall. There's a Charlie Brown cartoon that I really enjoy. Lucy comes into the room and her brother Linus is watching TV and she tells him to change channels and threatens him. Linus says, what makes you think you can walk in here and take over? Lucy says, these five fingers. Individually, they're nothing, but when I curl them together like this into a single unit, they form a weapon that is terrible to behold. <laughs> she walks away. Linus looks at his five fingers and says, why can't you guys get organized like that? And I look at some churches that are doing a great job loving others, and I sometimes say, how come we can't get organized like that? He has made the two one. Let's pray. Lord, what a grief it must be on your heart when Jesus dies for people from every tongue, tribe, and nation, and we erect barriers. Help us to love those we can see, which is proof that we truly love you, the one we cannot see. And may we get so organized that it'll make a great impression. In Jesus' name, amen.